I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... We have a lot of investors. We have over 1,200 high net worth qualified purchasers, uh, family offices, just in the DMV. You wouldn't believe how many are GovCons. They don't have to be the guy that sold the business. It could yeah. be the number two, three, four, five, or six person. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Today, we're joined by Tian Wang. Tian's been a guest before, but today is special because we get to talk with Tian a lot about the overall market for financing here in Washington, D.C. Tian is the CEO of Opus 8 and the founder of Connectpreneur. And if you don't know what that is, then you're not paying attention to the marketplace for venture capital and private equity investing in the DMV, actually globally. So Chen and I talk about what that platform is like, what the new marketplace is like for capital now that SVB and a bunch of other banks are under duress, and overall the marketplace for some of the important industries that Washington really dominates, like cybersecurity and quantum computing and hospitality and ed tech. It's a great conversation. So Connectpreneur, what are you up to? Like, What's your mail list now? I mean, it's huge, correct? Yeah, we're about 70,000 people globally. Yeah, that <laughs> increased a lot during the pandemic. Yeah. We, we now run the largest investor pitch event in the world. We do those monthly online. Yeah. And we're doing eight in-person events, which was what we were doing pre-COVID as well. So what are the what are some of the pro, what, what's a typical profile for a company that you would choose or your colleagues would choose for the pitch events? So stage-wise, we're looking at mostly post-seed pre-A or okay. A. Or bridge, sort yeah. of bridge to an A. We've had B and C and public companies present as well, but generally not two guys in a garage kind of profile. That's a little too early unless yeah. the two guys in a garage are substantial, putting a lot of their own capital in, and they're proven and and have done a few exciting things in the past. Yep. But that's generally the profile of – we've had over 1,000 companies in the last wow. 12 years present. Yeah, so, Amazing. But maybe 80% fit into that sort of post-seed, pre-A, A round. So the definition of rounds has changed a lot yeah, since yeah, you and I first met here, whatever, 20 plus years ago. Um, and, and where do you see the lines? I mean, it's still gray between everything, between a seed, a, a sort of an, a, a friends and family seed style, an official seed, then official A. What are some of the dollar figures that you're seeing? Yeah, so uh, seed rounds could be anywhere from a half a mil to maybe two and a half, three million-ish. I'm talking about East Coast. West yeah. Coast is a little different. Yep. Um, but we do have a lot of West Coast presenters coming in at higher valuations, but they're justifiable, I think. And I would say sort of a post-seed pre-A round might be sort of like a three to five million, an A round mm-hmm. maybe a little more than that, maybe right. a seven to eight million. I think yeah. you're seeing about 25 to 30% dilution per round. Got it. So, yeah, well, those numbers a, are more robust than they used to be. Yeah, they I mean, are. And, and you know, they were even more robust uh, 18 right. months ago before right. the tech bubble kind of burst in the stuck, public stock market. You want to make me start crying here? Is that why you're here, Tian? <laughs> All of us are crying. Yeah, we're sobbing a bit. Right. Well, let's go there. Our conversation now is with Tian Wang, the CEO of Opus 8 and also the founder of Connectpreneur. Um, times are tough. You know, I, I think it's fair to say that SVB's demise accelerated a whole lot of emotion. But even before that, were you seeing a uh, a drop in pre and post money valuations yes. of the kind of companies? We are definitely. We're seeing investor expectations go up because they feel like they have more opportunity, better opportunities to make money, yeah. know, discounts. And we're seeing um, issuing companies more reticent to do a round because it might be a down round. Yeah. 
So well, they keep around open. I love that. They keep it open. They have these rolling closes, and then they have bridges. So mm-hmm. we're seeing some a lot of demand for bridge financing to get to that next level because no one wants to take a down round. But at some point, you got to pay the piper. There will be some down rounds coming. How creative are you seeing bridges? Because I think of them as de- straight debt. Are you seeing bridges having all sorts of features that didn't used to happen? Depends on the kind of bridge. So I'm seeing a few bridge to uh, exit. Yeah. So I think if someone's got three or four term sheets from viable buyers and they need six to nine months of runway, then they will pay a flat interest rate of 15 to 18%. I know it's a lot, but it's cheaper than equity. Worth it, yeah. Yeah, but we're also seeing some sort of traditional bridge financing with um, a coupon that's accrued yeah. and um, and a discount to the, to the next institutional round. Yeah. And, I mean— are banks stepping up? It strikes me that banks are kind of reticent to do anything today. Yeah, right you... now they're pulling back, actually. Yeah, yeah you're seeing that. Um, unfortunately, they have to get their balance sheets in order, and they want to see more equity capital, I think. Was it your opinion that, that any venture capital firm on the East Coast was considering shutting its doors before they found out that SVB would make everybody whole? Um, I don't know of any. I've seen there are several that are struggling. Obviously, yeah. they're trying to raise their next round, or they're trying to raise their next fund, rather. Yeah. Um, you know, or they're trying to find opportunities. A lot of the early guys, the first-time funds, the micro funds, they're having issues for sure. Yeah. Because like, who's going to come in? Who's going to do the next fund for, with them? Gee, I wouldn't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing a little bit of that myself. Yeah, for sure. But the, um, I, I guess the 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 challenge that I heard a lot about was that, as we remember, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank would ask uh, uh, venture-backed companies that were its clients to put all of their capital in SVP. Yeah, that was and a that, covenant of the loan. Yeah, yeah, of the loan agreement. Sure. And they took as collateral, you know, some warrants in the company and stuff. It worked for a long, long time. I, I know it's unfair to ask, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you have any opinion or transparency into sort of how things got so bad so fast there? Yes, I do have an opinion. I think that the CEO made a huge mistake, or whoever issued the press release saying that they sold some securities and took booked a loss. That freaked everyone out. Everybody. Everyone. And that becomes a run on the bank. I mean, for sure, their treasury management was stupid, honestly. I mean, yeah. who would buy long bonds when short-term rates are going up? Yeah. I mean, that, that's just economics one, right. yeah, 101, right? Yeah. We learned no, that. no, not even we learned that in it's college. One. Yeah. yeah, it's <laughs> common sense, you know? Like, why would you ever do that? You're trying to match assets and liabilities. So yeah. that they did that. And by the way, they're not the only bank that's done it. I mean, there's... Dozens of banks that have done it, including some of the big guys. So, so besides SVB, we heard of First Republic. Do you think there's going to be a bunch more, or do you think that they've sort of snapped up some of the weak? I know I've seen some I've seen some statements. Maybe you can validate this. I heard that Jamie Dimon told a bunch of other bank CEOs, we promise not to try and poach clients from banks that are in trouble. And you should too. Did you hear that kind of behavior, or is that just a rumor that I? I haven't heard that, but I do think that if the feds, whoever that is, the Fed or FDIC and or more federal, yeah. federal home loan bank Treasury. board, whatever, yeah. if they step up and backstop deposits, probably we will avert some kind of. I mean, banking is all about confidence. Yeah. So if you have any like tiny little crack in the confidence, then everything can come tumbling down because exactly. everyone's highly leveraged. Yeah. So, you have to maintain confidence in the system first. So that's where the, that's the responsibility of the government, I yeah. think, and the big banks. But if, if people are confident, you're not going to see that. But I think you're going to see – and this is a fact. I know a lot of our alumni companies are pulling money out of smaller banks in general ah. and going to the 
too, too big, big to fail. To fail. Yeah. <laughs> Systemically important banks, as they yeah. call it, SIBs or whatever. So, yeah, like JP and, and B of A and Wells, City. they're all crushing it right now. So that seems, you know, I just, my personal, it's like, it seems unfair that 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 <laughs> these guys that are completely wrapped in um, in life vests, which SIBS is, what is it, systemically what, what, what's important? The, systemically important banking. Like yeah. uh, why would they be the ultimate beneficiary? But then again, I guess I should read my Charles Darwin once again and realize that this is probably Darwinian. Yeah, I read an article over the weekend that, um, that and I, I can't remember who wrote it, but somebody pretty credible saying that uh, we're going to be fewer, fewer bigger banks, just like in other countries, UK, right. Europe. Actually, UK has quite a few, but we have a ton of banks. We do. Um, whereas you look at some of the other developed countries, they have few, much fewer banks, yeah. much fewer banks. So let's go to Connectpreneur for a second. And once again, we're talking with Tian Wang. Tian is the president of Opus 8 and the founder of Connectpreneur. He's here with us on what's working in Washington because he works in Washington. Um, how much demand have companies that are trying to pitch in Connectpreneur asking for training feedback on their pitch deck? Because here's why I ask. Yeah. Back in the day, when you and I were at Dingman, the other entrepreneurial centers here in the area, yep. you at Georgetown, Maryland, we've overlapped a bunch you know, it was it was sort of like a, a secondary profession to bring in the entrepreneurs and hone their pitch, you know, to mm. make sure the slides had a target area market and all that stuff. It seems like everybody's so goddamn smooth at it now that there's less of it. Have you seen that? Well, in our world, not so much because we're now virtual, which means global uh, audience of entrepreneurs and a global pool of companies looking. So we have a much higher quality to pick from. So yeah. a lot of our presenters have already raised capital. Whereas before COVID, we would always have two or three or four presenters that had not raised capital yet. They were a little greener, maybe younger students or whatever. But even with experienced entrepreneurs, we part of the Connectpreneur process is they have to go through prep yeah. with our prep team. And we do rehearsals as well. We do multiple rehearsals, multiple prep sessions. And that's why when you go to our online events, that it runs really smoothly. These, these guys are very impressive. Also, because it's a numbers game, we have more more right. people to pick from. Yeah. How much time do you give them? Uh, they get four and a half minutes of Ouch. pitch, and then they have Tight. a yeah. But then there's a forty to sixty minute breakout room session. So ah. all of our presenters would have their own breakout room that they would host, and all the attendees can go in and out of whatever breakout rooms they want, so they can do a deep dive. And you had that in the real world before COVID, right? Real world, we had the same time, four yeah. and a half minutes. But instead, we have an hour and a half of networking before the pitch, yeah. and an hour and a half after. So the connections were made face-to-face, -face, and each presenter would have their own exhibit table so that they could talk to all the people there. But, and I know this from personal experience, you have face-to-face -face events these days where tabletops do exist. Yes. What, what's a typical experience of a – first of all, how do you find those companies to have a tabletop? Uh, how much training do you ask of them or from them before they show up? And what what are some typical outcomes? The same kind of thing. We we have a vetting process. We have a, com a committee review and approval process, and they have to make sure, you know, we, we look at their decks and their executive summaries, make sure that they are a good fit and that yeah. they're far along, not brand new. So, you know, we do do prep, but not as much prep. And uh, we out we do outreach, but also a lot of referrals from our community. We have over a thousand presenting companies, over two thousand sort of in our funnel that are interested in presenting at some stage in the future. So we have a pretty big base. We have um, several dozen ambassadors and uh, a lot of partners that refer us 
I think we're no, pretty much known now as a as a real yep. great place for people to get funded. Like half our companies have gotten funded. Well, I, I, in in the second part of the show, I want to drill down on this specific market here in the Washington area about yeah. the amount of money that swims around, you know, DOD and and government suppliers, which there's just staggering amounts, as we all know. But I'm I'm interested in uh, in your or your colleagues. Do you do you want to invest in some of the companies you see? Do you? Can you? What's the structure there? Yeah, I personally have invested in a number of the presenting companies more before COVID. Since COVID's yeah. happened, we we have our capital deployed into other buyout stuff that we're looking at. But yeah, we we our team of ambassadors and investors. Um, yeah, we half of these companies get funded half. And a lot of wow. that comes from people that are close in our network or what I would call, you know, connectment or team type people. So half the batting average is incredible. I mean, that must be it an amazing good. sales yeah. pitch when you say you want to come into the uh, the organization. It is. And it's funny because, you know, we're providing the uh, a platform with very uh, it's it's there. We have all these investors there. You know, no one has a bigger platform than us. We have yeah. 100 to 150 investors at every meeting. So it's up to the presenters to do a great close job. The deal, they got to close the deal, and yeah. they got to. It's it's 1976, and I own Studio 54. There you go. There so you go. I we can, can guarantee you a fun time, we but can, you got to go. You know, do yeah, your work. Got to have your cocaine. I'm sorry, I didn't no. say that. you have to have something there. It's <laughs> right. Jen Wong, ladies and gentlemen. He is our guest here on What's Working in Washington. We'll talk more about the DC market and specifically private equity and venture capital around this market when we return. It's What's Working in Washington. Again, we're excited to have with us Tian Wang. Tian is literally a brand name here in the DMV, as they say. That's District Maryland, Virginia, with his leadership at Opus 8 as CEO, but also, perhaps more importantly, with all due respect, my friend, uh, creation and growth of Connectpreneur, which is, I guess, now the largest uh, platform for entrepreneurs to present their case and raise funding. So congratulations on that. So let's go back a little bit of history of the Tian Wang arc. (laughs) <laughs> lore, what, what did Lore Systems do? That um, predated Opus 8, correct? No. Opus 8 was started right when I sold my company, CyberRep. So Got it. 2002. Um, but Lore was one of the companies we acquired, and that does government cloud hosting. It's a cloud hosting provider and co-location. Got it. So it serves federal government. I'm well, chairman of the company. Let's go there. Federal government. So I used to make, when I worked for the federal government, I had a short, glorious career, as you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, I used to tell people it's a $4 trillion corporation, top line. Sadly, its revenue is only about $3.7 trillion, so the delta was part of the problem. Uh, Four million employees, two million in uniform, two million out, right? So just think of a company that big. Mm. And of course, everybody would want to do business with them. And you and I are standing in the center of a 40-mile circle where there's a lot of companies that are trying to tap into that revenue, that that spending stream, I, I should say, from DOD on. Right. Um, I, I think our mutual friend Jonathan Aberman has claimed, he's done a lot of research in this, that there's actually as much or more M&A and investment in this area as there is in Silicon Valley, but it's for companies that aren't able to talk about their product or don't have a sexy product because they're making you know a, a wing design for General Dynamics as a sub – so that we never get the credit we should. Mm. I know you're a fan of this market, obviously. Do you see that much vitality? I do, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think Jonathan said we've had over 100 or 200 unicorn exits in the last 20, 25 years. It's crazy. Which no one ever knows about. I know. Yeah, I think we we don't do a good enough job promoting ourselves and bragging. Also, our client wouldn't like it if we did that, meaning the federal government. So yeah. I think 
it's a little more on a QT. Yeah. But yeah, I see a lot of vitality. I see a lot of investments. I see a lot of incredible amounts of innovation coming out of biotech and life sciences, especially caused by people trying to solve, you know, uh, issues that came up during the pandemic. Right. But we were always pretty strong in that area. We have a good flywheel going in um, in biotech and life sciences. We have a great flywheel going in cybersecurity and national Huge. security tech. Yeah. Uh, at ed tech, we're strong. Yep. I think uh, hospitality and food tech. Huge. So there are certain segments of the market that are doing quantum, just great. Yeah. Quantum is huge right now. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's so mm -hmm. let's let's so so what's your what's your sense of the platform, both yours and others that are out there, for a startup in health tech, ed tech, cyber, whatever. It, are these tough markets to break into? Or are you constantly trying to get some IP and then sell upstream to a larger player who's got a government contract? Is it somewhere else? Because I see a lot of that scenario where startups, funding, IP or a product or service get some traction and then somebody big buys them, which is fine. But do you see uh, do you see more vitality than just that sort of M&A upstream? I mean, you do see um, some companies that have gone public, you know, I'll say like 2U, which is a great ed tech company. They've done really well. Chip. They've gone public. Chip is fantastic. Um you know, I mean, that's one example of an ed tech that didn't wind up selling. Right. Will he wind up? He's buying, but maybe he'll be bought by someone someday. But yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with that inherently. Um, I mean, the key here is that we are, we have great people, great institutions to support customer base, capital, and we're able to build that ecosystem up. So whether if somebody exits like AOL exited, is that necessarily a bad thing? I don't think it's necessarily bad. I mean, it'd be great if AOL kept buying everybody, yeah. but- um, but look at what the legacy has been amazing, right? Yeah. So it's no, the same it's thing with these other companies that we're seeing. I think we just want to see successful companies. It doesn't matter if they sell, go public, stay private, whatever. If they're successful, they're employing, they're innovating, that's great for the D.C. region. It is interesting. Um, I worked at AOL, as you know, back in the early crazy days. Uh, MCI, AOL, I guess um, there have been some other home runs, obviously. But what's fun is that many of those folks have stayed here. Yes. And the Valley, Silicon Valley obviously has that physical ecosystem. They all have coffee in Palo Alto and whatever. <laughs> right. Um, I think we need a little more of that. But there is some folks making some significant personal wealth from IPOs and stuff like that who stick around here and become both philanthropists and do other venture investing and stuff like that. Um, do you see – I don't see as much of that from government contract. Maybe I'm just not conscious of it, but – you said ed tech, I think hospitality. I, I just hope it continues to grow. We have a lot of investors. We have over 1,200 high net worth qualified purchasers, uh, family offices, just in the DMV and wow. just outside that. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it used to be 700, but you wouldn't believe how many are GovCons. They don't have to be the guy that sold the business. It could yeah. be the number two, three, four, five, or six person. But I've seen GovCon people come in and write checks for biotech startups that they have no idea about. They just like the idea. They like the CEO. CEO's got a good track record. They'll take a make a bet because they want to diversify. Love it. So really, it's hard to generalize. But there's a lot of people that worked in government's contracting that are in our network of investors or high-income people as well. Yeah. And, and your sense is they're trying to diversify out of GovTech yeah. into other? Yeah, yes, interesting. exactly. And also, I think angels are like ice cream. There's like 100 flavors. Like, yeah. Some people well want said. to do one deal a year. Some are, are deal junkies. Yeah. Some will write big checks. Some will write a bunch of small ones. Yeah, it's it's all. Some are in the market and then out 
the next year. I mean, it's yeah. it's so For the record for variable. our listeners, Chan just gestured to me when he said deal junkie, so I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. But no, it I, is a I, compliment. I, well, I, I I appreciate that. I mean, I, I I love I love being in the flow, as you know, and you are yeah, yeah. you're you're mm-hmm. the source of the flow. So the the other thing is people, and I wonder what are you seeing as far as talent because you know you listen. I, God knows when I talk to smaller startups that I'm engaged with, they're talking about the price of talent just continues to climb, to climb, to climb, to climb. Do you see that continuing? What's your what's your sense of, of HR? Price of talent is um, going to flatten a little bit, okay, because of all the layoffs going on. Yeah, okay, Amazon is. I think they hired twenty. 30,000 people and now they're cutting back right even from there laying off people even yeah. in the DMV so exactly. there's we may see a net negative job growth well not net negative but I think from some of these guys you know they'll get the talent Se- gets snapped negative. up yeah. but um I don't think it's as crazy as it was during the heat of COVID also there's going to be a lot of I see employers getting a little more power because you're starting to see employees have to go back to work exactly. against their will they yeah. don't want to so some of those employees are going to try to look for other jobs that are more remote telecommute. But at the end of the day, over time, it'll probably move back to you got to come to the office. I mean, yeah. this is how product, product, most productive way that things get done. So, uh, you know, I think that we're going to see the cost of labor kind of stabilize a little bit. So your last sentence or next to last sentence that it's the most productive way that things get done is yeah. in the office. Oh yeah. There are some people pushing back on that. And yeah. I'm wondering, you must be having some conversations, certainly a connectpreneur companies probably come in and say, well, we're going to hire the next 15 coders, but they're all going to live in Albuquerque and Santa Fe and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Is there pushback from investors on that? Not yet. I don't think, but clearly if you look at all the top tech companies in the world, they all work under one roof. All the coders are together. Facebook's in one building. Apple's in one building. All the top companies. An amazing building too. Uh, yeah. yeah. Microsoft has a big campus. Google has a big campus. There's a reason because collaboration in person um, is not the same as collaboration via Zoom, via Slack, via text message. It's yeah. just not the same thing. Certainly when you're on the same team writing code. Yeah. I- well, you tell or me. Or collaborating in marketing and creative thinking. Right. You know, how, how do you brainstorm when you're all on Zoom, right? It's much better to be in a room where you can, you know, kind of play off of each other's energy and brain brain power. Yeah. Well, it's funny because when I was in the federal government, we had ASW or AWS, alternative work schedules, mm-hmm. not Amazon Web Services, <laughs> but AWS. I, I used to get confused with the acronyms, um, but alternative work schedules were quite common in uh, GS 11, 12, 13, 14, at 15, GS 15 and above, and that's for listeners who don't care about the federal government, that's that's a ranked uh, title mm-hmm. level with salary attached. So the so the mid to, mid-tier GS levels had alternative work schedules and they structured one, two, three days out long before COVID. Yeah. So when COVID hit, at least the my, my team and my old agency, and I think this is true across many, maybe you're seeing it as well, they were like, hey, Let's do it. Let, let's lock this in as a full-time alternative work schedule mm-hmm. for, as far as the eye can see. I don't think there's any study yet, but I'm convinced the federal government, quote-unquote, writ large, had a productivity decrease with all this AWS. I, I think I, – I would guess also, yes. Yeah. I yeah. just hope – It hope just if it's, common sense tells you that. Yeah. yeah. You know, some people are geared up for telework. They're responsible. They, they do their job. And then some people – love to take advantage of the situation. Yeah. Maybe they have a side gig going. Yeah. Maybe they have two jobs. Maybe they well, spend three hours a day at the gym or work walking the dog or whatever. I mean, you know, it's I'm not saying I'm not an advocate of Big Brother at all. I'm an yeah. advocate of um 
responsibility and accountability. But um, I do think that there are some huge benefits to being in person, working collaboratively with your teammates, building building trust, building yeah. friendships, building true bonds, human to human bonds. You can't get that on Zoom. Just can't. So famously, quick side story, one of my direct report, I guess direct report, was on AWS and I asked this person for uh, either their home telephone number or a mobile number in case something came up. And they insisted no. When they were on AWS, they were, the only way you could communicate them was through an email to them that they would hopefully respond to. At the time, I was like, you understand the W in alternative work schedule stands for work, right? As opposed to, to your point on, on right. side gig. So um, final couple of questions on this before we go to the end of our show. And once again, we're here with Tian Wang, the CEO of Opus 8 and founder of Connectpreneur. Uh, this idea of, um, of uh, hospitality being so strong here. I think I saw that about 60% of the market cap of publicly traded hospitality companies is in Montgomery County or the DMV, with huge, obviously, Marriott and a few others. Marriott Hilton, Ritz-Carlton's right, right across the right, street. And then host, Choice guess, Hotels, host, host, host yeah. Marriott. Choice. I, I, yeah. what, what do you think happened? Why, why is that? Just, 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 just kismet? It just happened? Well, you look at other hospitality capitals. Memphis, yeah. Tennessee. That's where Strong Holiday point. Inn was. So yes. Holiday Inn then spawned Hampton Inn. It spawned all these other companies in Memphis. Good call. Yeah, same thing. You have Marriott here. Yeah. Jay Willard, my actually yeah. my father's old client. My father's an ad agency, oh, ad agency okay. business. He was called Hot Shops when it first started. Oh, yeah, he sure, absolutely. Hot Shops and Mary was a client. Well, listen, we come to the end with a fabulous conversation with Tian Wang. Tian, as you know, we ask all of our guests at the end of the show, if you rule the world, what was one thing you'd start happening or one thing you would stop happening or both? What's your what's your take? Yeah, I um I think I answered this last time I was here. Go and for I, it. My answer is the same. I would uh make everybody meditate for 10 minutes a day. Okay. Not for an hour, you know, but 10 minutes and um, meditate. What benefits have you seen? Oh, it saved my life, basically. Wow. <laughs> so, Other yeah, I mean, 17 years of daily meditation, basically, every wow. day. Yeah, 10 to 20 minutes a day. I mean, it's uh, it's like brushing your teeth. It's part of my life. You know, it's like eating right, drinking water, going to gym, exercise, whatever. It's To me, it's that that thing. But what it does is it calms you down. It focuses your thinking. It gets you centered and present. Like, I'm not just throwing frou-frou words. It really yeah. does get you centered and present. And um, maybe the other thing I would do is uh, no social media from the time you wake up until noon. Smart. For everybody. I concur. Because if you did that, then you would be able to focus on what you need to do and your top priorities in the morning. Two very good suggestions. Yeah. Man, you, you, you brought yeah. it today. Yeah, the third thing I would do is uh, everyone has to wake up at 5 a.m. Okay, there we so, go. Let's three stop things. there. <laughs> so three suggestions, meditation, no social media till noon, yeah. and waking up at 5, which means seven hours of no social media. I can do that math. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. Wouldn't I, that be I, great? Think I about think that. I totally, you had a I ban on social media till noon every day, I right? completely agree. Chen Wang has been our guest. He is the CEO of Opus 8 and the founder of Connectpreneur. Just go look at either company, but check out Connectpreneur. It is clearly one of the major, I guess the largest now, platform for entrepreneurs to find capital and cap folks with capital to find entrepreneurs. It's What's Working in Washington. Tian, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by The Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.